Hi, everyone. This is Kyle from The Career Guide. And before we start our podcast today, I just wanted to say thanks for listening and subscribing. And I also wanted to make sure that you knew that we have a free community for graduates, young professionals, or really anyone that's interested in finding, starting, and managing their international career. So go ahead and check the link in the show notes, and you can join us inside the community where there's 130-plus members already striving to achieve their international career. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you inside the community. And now on to our podcast. Especially for Americans, we recognize that sort of uphill struggle that we had of getting out into the international market. And I think most, if not all of us, are happy to talk to students nowadays because we recognize that even still 22 years later, career centers are not geared towards a global market. I mean, we can talk all we want in the U.S. about, you know, capitalism and, you know, free trade and these sorts of things. But the reality of the situation is it's still very much done staying in the United States. What is your career in the U.S.? And they're not catered about how to work abroad. Hey, everybody. This is the Career Guide podcast. Brought to you by Capacity Building International and your host, Kyle King. If you've dreamed of working abroad and having an international career, this podcast is for you. Every episode is an interview with someone from the international community. We hear their stories, how they got started, and about their life and experiences while working abroad. Each episode will provide you with personal insights, tips, and strategies to help you launch your international career. We hope you enjoy this episode and make sure to follow us on LinkedIn and sign up for our career newsletter so you don't miss out on your future and opportunities. Today, we're talking with Chris Decker, who has spent the last 11 years working internationally as a project manager and advisor in rule of law and human rights projects for the UNDP in locations such as East Jerusalem, Nepal, and Kosovo. Chris started out as an international legal officer with International Crisis Group and transitioned to an administrator position in the European Court of Human Rights Litigation Unit, followed by a program manager position and research position in the European Center for Minority Issues. And then Chris spent eight years working for the OSCE before starting as a program coordinator with the UNDP. Overall, Chris has spent 23 years working in the international environment, and we're happy to have him join us here today. All right, Chris. Well, welcome. Thanks a lot for you know agreeing to do an interview with us and to talk about your experiences in the international career environment. One of the things, I guess, from right up the start is, is how about a short introduction? Kind of tell us how long you've been working internationally for the different types of organizations and maybe even the countries that you've been to since you've uh, sure. been outside the U.S. for so long. Right. So, um, I mean, by training, I, I'm a lawyer, uh, although I didn't really practice much in the States because I decided that that's not really something that I wanted to do when I got exposed to it. And so I, I went off and did a master's degree in international human rights law. And um, the timing was, I, perfect was not the right word. It was opportune in that I was finishing my master's right when conflict in Kosovo, war in Kosovo broke out. And so that meant that there was uh, lots of organizations that were looking for people to go and work there. And so when I finished my my LLM, I was able to basically get a short-term contract immediately, and that sort of helped me get a foot in the door. Um, and, you know, so then organizations were often just looking for anyone that had been to Kosovo. And so the fact that I had already spent four months there made me much more sort of marketable. And so that was it. I mean, I, I started my career in basically 1999, sort of in the fall after I had finished my dissertation. And, you know, it was a bit rocky at first, bobbing around from job to job and short-term contracts. And then I ended up with the OSCE and I was with them for about three years. And then I went off to a research institute in Germany for about a year and a half. And then back to OSCE for another four and a half years and then transitioned right into the UN Development Program. And I've been with the UN Development Program now for 11 years. And I've worked in a bunch of different countries. You know, the longer term ones were Kosovo, Nepal, and now in Palestine. Um, but I've also done short term sort of work in Georgia, Armenia, Mauritius, you know, lots of little uh, short term gigs a month here, a month there that sort of thing. 
Um, so yeah, so now it's been um, about 22 years since I left the United States and I went off to do my master's and I've uh, been working 21 years international full-time. Uh, so very, very similar to me as well. I mean, I, I got started in 99 and so in July of 99 to be precise and, and first, you know, went over to support the U.S. Army as a civilian in, in Bosnia during the conflict there and then eventually transitioned over to Afghanistan and then Kosovo and, and then now in Ukraine. Um, it's interesting that you got your start, though, from like a, a study abroad kind of perspective. It's part of your educational program to finish your master's. You had to go abroad and, and do something there to finish as part of your thesis work. Or what was the rationale for actually being in Kosovo, I guess it was? Um, actually, it was, uh, you know, I, I took the traditional course. I did a bachelor's degree at, at Purdue University in, in history and political science. And then I went and got my law degree at uh, State University of New York at Buffalo, which was a normal three years law degree. And sort of maybe about midway through, um, I was I was clerking at a, a medium-sized firm in Buffalo. It was a great firm. I mean, the lawyers were great. Um, they really treated me well. They were super, you know, kind and quite ethical lawyers. Um, but the unfortunate part was you had to deal with other lawyers. And, and that's where you begin to realize that the practice of law can be a really nefarious sort of profession. And, um, you know, the things that lawyers do are just not always in their clients' interests or, um, although they're supposed to be, uh, and and I just kind of realized this is not for me. This is really just not what I want to be doing with my life. So I actually, and I'd always had an interest in human rights. And really, I mean, in some ways, that's why I went to law school. But I was also quite grounded in understanding that generally people that have a career in international law go to Harvard, Yale, Columbia, Chicago. You know, they go to like the big five or, or one right. of the big 10 law schools. And that wasn't me. You know, I wasn't going to one of those law schools. So it was always going to be a bit more of an uphill battle uh, for me. So I decided to get a master's degree in international human rights law, which is a one-year master's degree. And when I was just looking at programs, um, you know, yes, I, I looked at Harvard, I looked at Yale, but there was also this one university in Europe who had this amazing track record of getting students placed in human rights careers, basically. And this is Essex University. And at the time, it was very much a place where you had the practitioner academic. So this was not just a bunch of people in an ivory tower, but these were people going out and taking cases. Oh, and by the way, they published also, you know, and they taught. Mm -hmm. um, so they were really, you know, practitioners. And you know, some of them were advisors to very sort of influential and senior UN, uh, you know, offices. Some of them were taking cases to the European Court of Human Rights. And so what it meant was you could go to that place and really study with people that were practicing human rights, not just, you know, studying it out of a book. Um, and so that's really how I got started. You know, then, of course, being in England and being in close proximity to a lot of the, the UN bodies that deal with human rights, because at the time they were all in Geneva, Switzerland. Um, and you have the Office of the High Commissioner for Human Rights, which is in Geneva. A, a number of other UN agencies are there that are, are quite human rights focused. So um, yeah, so that that sort of set me on that on that path. And I'm I'm quite convinced that had I not gone to Essex, I would not have ended up in an inter- excuse me, an international career. We jokingly say that uh, it's the Essex Mafia. Uh, and because now, you know, they've had an LLM in human rights for, I think, about 35, 40 years. It's nearly impossible uh, in the UN um, not to find someone in the human rights field, you know, in your office or, or whatever, who hasn't gone to Essex. So it's a really big network yeah. Yeah. Uh, of people. That's interesting. So, of course, I think with international careers, it's always an, an aspect of networking. Um, and in your case, it was kind of going outside the U.S. to a, a university and getting into a university that has a strong international 
program and, and relations or, or in, in a network itself. But I, I often think that, and, and actually coming from that, you mentioned just because of the fact they have a network and because they're around in the different, you know, in the, the big capitals, right? And so kind of throughout the course, we talk about like, you can always go to, like most people kind of focus on the Vienna, the Brussels, the Geneva, the London, you know, all these kind of capital cities in Europe. And, and a lot of the programs do essentially kind of focus on starting at top of the organization. Like that's where you want to be. But for you, for yourself and then even for me, you know, I spend most of my time in the field, you know, kind of on the different missions and things like that. So what has kind of driven you to be more into the field as opposed to actually, you know, working in Vienna or Geneva or anything else? Yeah. If, if there was anything, it doesn't have to be. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, look, I mean, a lot of it is sort of accidental. I'm, I'm not going to lie and sort of say, you know, it, the age of 25, I had my whole sort of career planned out and what I was going to do and when and things like that. I mean, a lot of it is just falling into opportunities. And I, maybe it's not so inspirational, but a lot of it is luck. You know, it's being yeah, at the right place at the right time. But there are certainly things that are within your control. And what you can do is, of course, listen to people in the field that you're interested in and how to get the skills that, that like place you at sort of the front of the queue, if you will, you know, that, that get you prepared, um, that should you be given that opportunity, you can really, you know, seize it with both hands and run with it. So, yeah, I mean, I've, I've kind of stayed out in the field, um, mostly because that's where interesting jobs have been, uh, number one. Number two, um, that's where more of the jobs are. So, you know, when you're applying, it's a numbers game. and even you know, again, I don't want to discourage your your students, but it, <laughs> even at my level, um, you know, it's still a numbers game. You know, I, I'm still going to apply for anywhere from 50 to 150 jobs, and I'm going to hope that I get invited to maybe three or four tests, and then I'm going to hope that out of those three or four tests, I get invited to two or three interviews, and then I'm going to hope that I get offered one job. Now, a lot of people don't subscribe to my view, and it's you know perfectly acceptable, but I, I jokingly say that they take the B52 method to applying for jobs. You know, you just, you bomb everything and hope you hit something. And, you know, also having been inside the process for so long, I mean, I've sat on hundreds of interview panels over the years. And I know that, you know, sometimes even because there's fights within the organization, the job description may not be written exactly what they're looking for, because even that becomes a political process. So sometimes, you know, just applying for things which appear to be close to you, go for it. You know, sometimes, I mean, the one that always ticked me off, um, and I'm sorry to say it goes back to my OSCE days, um, but, you know, there, there was one mission that I was really wanted to work in, and all their jobs kept saying Russian, you know, you, you had to speak fluent Russian. And I would apply and you know, the, the American process and, and rightly so, you know, the people in the American process would say, well, you don't have one of the requirements, so we're not going to put you forward. Do you know how many times those jobs went to people that didn't speak Russian, you know? And it's just so like, you know, frustrating because I don't want to say you can't play by the rules and of course you should, but you know, if they have like a list of six or seven requirements and you don't meet one of them, put your CV in, you know, it, it's like I grew up in New York and the New York lottery slogan is you got to be in it to win it. You know, if you don't apply for the job, you're never going to get hired for it. If you apply for it and they kick you out because they really do want Spanish or Russian or, you know, whatever, then okay, they're not going to consider you, but you'll never know. You'll just never know unless you apply. So, uh, I mean, if you only meet half of the requirements, maybe it's not worth your your while. But you know, take a look at it, and, and I think you see uh, whether it's it's worth your time. Yeah, that's really that's interesting. I mean, I'm not I'm not sure that's just the international community that does that because, of course, I think there's a struggle with jobs in the states and everywhere else, but. What it was funny about that when you mentioned that. So as we were going through and kind of building out this course, 
And I was actually kind of just doing a walkthrough of looking at international jobs and kind of just looking at the job descriptions and things like that. And there was a position open, and I can't remember for which one it was for. It was in Belgrade. It had a Spanish language requirement. You know, and you go, what is that for, right? You know, it's just like so random that it's either, and quite legitimately, could just be a typo, right? Or it's actually a requirement. And then you say, but why? You know, like, why is Spanish a requirement when it's speaking Serbian or whatever the case is? Or speaking the organizational language, which is most cases usually French or something else, right? Yeah. So that That's what's always kind of, kind of funny about these things. But, um, you know, I, I have very much taken the same approach. It's about what's available, right? And And so... And I think that kind of takes us nicely into this conversation about, you know, how are we managing our careers? Because even like for me today, it's on a one-year budget cycle. So one-year contract, one-year contract. And I, that's kind of the same with most international organizations. It's kind of on a one-year thing. The OSC is slightly different that I've learned. So it's more like our budget is approved every year. So <laughs> it's a bit more uh, complicated, I think. But, you know, that just kind of requires professionals like yourself and, and myself that I, I think, and in, in not to pat ourselves on the back too much, but we've had a rather long international career than, than most people, right? So it's having, having to be able to work 20 years overseas is, a, is um, both a curse and a blessing at the same time, right? So, but I, you know, how, how are you addressing this? Like, what is your perspective on these annual contracts? And like, how do you look at that from your career management perspective? I mean, it's gotten a little bit different as I've gotten older. I mean, certainly when I was younger in my career, it was a little bit of a stress, you know, not knowing whether you'd have a job or not. And, and of course, as you go through those normal things that we all do in life, like getting married, like buying a house, you know, oh my goodness, now I've got a mortgage, but I only have a one-year contract. And, you know, yes, I mean, again, um, you know, we've lived through those sorts of things too. And um, those are big stresses. But what I will say is that as you get older, you do get a little bit less concerned with it, probably because you're used to it by that point in time, but also you get to understand the system quite a lot better. So now I mean, I'm, I'm working in the UN development program and I basically manage development projects. So the only time I really ask the question sort of about funding and about the length of the contract is initially, because I did make the mistake once in my career of not saying, you know, do you have enough money to actually pay for my post? You know, and then you get there and they're like, oh, you've got a fundraise for your job and you've got, oh, three months. And, you know, if you can't raise the money for your job, you know, goodbye. What? You know, so, um, yeah. I mean, now I always ask that question in an interview. You know, I make sure they've got money uh, fund my first year because it, it's completely unrealistic for you to be parachuted into a place that, you know, even if you know the setting of the place, you don't know the personalities. You don't know the people in the embassies that have their hands on the money. You don't, you have to build up a rapport with these people first. And, you know, fundraising is a skill which you cannot be taught in a university classroom. It's just not possible. It's something that, you know, you have to do, you have to practice and you have to get good at it through, it's a, it's a contact sport, you know, and you're just not going to get good at it by simply watching a video of it. You know, you have to partake in it. And so now, you know, I can gauge and I can understand, okay, you know, they have a year of funding and did you have solid donors in the first phase of the project or do you have donors that are really interested in this phase? You know, is it going to be a hard sell? You know, you can do your own homework then and say, okay, yes, you know, Sweden or Germany, yes, they've been funding rule of law activities in Kosovo, in Nepal, wherever for the past eight years. So what are the chances they're going to cut their program? You know, so you, you can make some calculated risks at that point. And so, yeah, I mean, in some ways, at least I know my fate is in my own hands now. Um, it's not reliant upon some person sitting in New York who decides, okay, I'm going to get rid of all the P5s this year, or, okay, we're going to shift all the P5s from New York to Geneva, or now we're going to shift them from Geneva back to New York it's all in my hands. You know, if I raise the money to keep the program going, I know I've got a, a contract for another year. 
Um, and then in reality, you're never raising money on a development project for one year, you're raising it for three years or five years. So you then kind of know, okay, as long as I do a good job, as long as um, I don't take anybody off, then I know that you know, I'm basically secure for the next three years, even if it's a one-year contract. Now, the NGO world, of course, can be a little bit different about that. You know, a lot of that, you know, they too are working on donations from governments and organizations. Um, but, you know, if they have pretty decent planning processes in place, they should at least know for a couple of years whether you're relatively safe or not. Um, but I definitely, in that in that time at the end of the interview, you know, when they say, "Do you have any questions for us?" You always have to ask the you know the question. So, um, where is the funding coming for this post that you're advertising? You know, is it core? Is it from a donor? If it's from a donor, how long is that donor's funding going to be in place for? Because then that gives you a real idea as to how much time you potentially have in the post, regardless of the official length of the contract. Yes, yeah, the, the, the secret questions for the interview, right? To, yeah, exactly. <laughs> to figure out what's going on. Uh, it, it's interesting that you mentioned that because, you know, in my experience has kind of been, you know, we have these three-year cycles in international programs, whether that's with NATO or UN or others, but there's kind of this three-year evolution of these missions or projects or whatever we want to call them. Because about that three-year point, there's, there's, a pretty hard review to see if it's going to keep going for another three years or not. Now, it's not necessarily couched as that specifically, right? But it's been my experience that it is in its three-year cycle. And it's also, you can sort of see that to a certain extent because there's these limitations that they build into the employment system, system and mechanisms, specifically like within NATO. So NATO, once you sign a contract, it says specifically three years plus three years if you're good right? So a three plus three contract, and then you have to move on. Or you see things like OSC, which is a seven year in a mission, but maybe 10 years in total. Yeah. Or there's these kind of limitations that we see built into the international organizations. And I, but experience on the ground has showed me exactly the same thing of what you're saying is like, okay, there's this one year, you know, kind of contract, but three years is just about the norm before you can actually see there's kind of a, a review that's taking place. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it, it, you know, there's ways around this and I, I don't want to get into all the legalities, but basically even in the UN system, um, they have something called mobility. And in theory, everyone is supposed to be moving posts about every four years. And instead of having a very firm, solid rule in HR, what they do is they link it to, um, you know, pay. So essentially, for the first four years, you're in a, you're in a sort of country office setting, then they have something called a mobility allowance for the moment. You know, if people are watching this five years from now, who knows, you know, the UN changes their benefits all the time. But at the moment, there's something called a mobility allowance. And, um, you know, so for the first four years, you receive this basically uh, when you're in a post. And of course, you have to have already had five years in the organization. You have to have moved from one uh, duty station to another duty station in order to begin to accrue it and things like this. But at the end of that four years, if you haven't moved on, they take that away from you. And that's a little bit of the, the boot in the backside to encourage you to move on so that you're not just you know, staying in a position for as long as you can. I think that's not a bad thing for two reasons. Um, a, it's good for you. Uh, you know, I don't think you should spend, you know, necessarily 10 years in one job, basically. Two, I think it's also good for the organization because you move on. And if you stay in the organization, you're taking all the lessons you've learned from that country context and you're bringing them to a new country context. Similarly, bringing someone in new gets someone to look at the problems with a fresh eye. So, I mean, I agree with you. I, I think, you know, three, four years is, is roughly the shelf life that one should have in a job like this. It's rare, but you do see people that stay, you know, six, seven years uh, in, in some positions. 
in my experience, those people that tend to stay that long tend to be really angry people. <laughs> you know, they tend to be very pessimistic, angry people. Um, and, and so, yeah, I don't, I don't suggest it. I, I suggest trying to move on. Definitely. And, and I think, and we also, and I like the word mobility because that's also true of many international organizations that they have this underlying idea that you need to come in gain the experience and then move on. And one of the things that we've kind of taught throughout this course is that you really have two approaches to trying to work internationally. And one of those is the fact that you can try and go straight to Geneva, you can try and go straight to Vienna, and you can join a very competitive market, or you can try and work in the missions or try and start in the field, so to speak. And our approach that we advise is really just start in the field environment because then it does become an issue of mobility. Because if you start at the top and you, you have a three plus three contract and you're tapped out after six years and you, you have to go somewhere else, where as far, as far as career management perspective, it's better if you start in the field environment and do three years and three years and three years and you take six or seven missions and then it's 20 years later, you know, 21 years later, and then you're, you're, you progressively work your way up to these headquarters offices if you want that, right? Yeah. But it gives you the upward mobility in an organization or different organizations instead yeah. of just, you know, kind of when, when somebody comes into a field environment and they've been working for six years at headquarters, then they come to a field environment and then we always go, why? <laughs> you know, why are you here? Yeah. No, I, I would agree with that. The only thing I, I would add to that is um, I think it also depends um the field that you're in. I mean, one of the things that has sort of happened to me is because now, you know, I've been in the field for 21 years um, and I have sort of, you know, progressed. And now, you know, a bit of at a point where I have a certain seniority level, which is great, but really there's only one position in headquarters that I can apply for. And that position comes up about once every six or seven years. Um, and, and so, I do look back and I do kind of wish that maybe after my, you know, second or third sort of job uh, in the field that I had focused a bit more on looking to go to headquarters or a regional office or something like that at that point when I was still a little bit less senior, because now the problem is that I'm, I'm almost too senior. Uh, and there's too few posts that are at my level to go back. And yes, you can go down. But, you know, panels and HR offices are really weird, you know, I, I hope, you know, none of your students are HR people looking, but, but, you know, they can be a little strange. Like, you know, for me, if I get a, if I get a, a CV of someone who's applying and they have a really non-traditional CV for the field, for me, it piques my interest. Okay, let me see. What can I figure out from their cover letter or their CV why they're interested? Is it just money? Is it just a UN job? Or is it, you know, they've had it up to here and their current career and they're really looking for something new? And, you know, but a lot of HR people are not sort of that open minded to think in that way. And for them, it's very linear. You know, you start at the bottom, you work your way up, you go, 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 and that's it. Um, and, and so, yeah, I mean, I think um, it's difficult to sort of, you know, I'm in rule of law, human rights, it would be very difficult now for me to try to shift into political affairs. Personally, I think that out of all the things I do, that's actually one of my strong suits is sort of reading a political situation and analyzing it and understanding how a program or a project should adapt to the political situation. I also think I'm, it's one of my talents advising, you know, senior UN staff or ambassadors that are, you know, involved in, in sort of rule of law about the political situation. There's not an organization on the planet that would take me for a political affairs officer at the moment. And, and there's no way I could drop back down to say a P3 or an entry level political affairs. HR people would just be like, this makes no sense. You know, why, why would someone who's, you know, at a P5 at a senior rule of law position now drop back, you know, one or two levels to try to go into political affairs? It makes no sense. We can't possibly understand this in the BIM. So, you know, these big organizations are not very good at 
creativity and sort of looking at, you know, somebody's background and thinking, you know, what they could bring, you know, sort of say uh, the cliche, the X factor. You know, I, I read a lot of CVs and I can see sometimes what a person's X factor might be. It doesn't mean they're a fit for the current job, but I, I do think in general with these big bureaucracies, it's a numbers game again. So they're not really looking what your X factor is. It's like, okay, in this pile. Oh, no, not enough in that pile. And that's, that's sort of what's happening really, um, which is a shame. Uh, because I think you miss a lot of good talent that way. Yeah, I like the way you phrase that because so it is about mobility, but it's also in a certain aspect, it's career management. And so what I, I think what's really unique about kind of this program that we're developing is because of the fact that when I first started in 99, and I don't I don't know about your experience, but I had like literally no idea how this whole system worked, right? And yeah. nobody ever told me don't be too long in the field. You do need the, you do need to manage your career as you go forward. And, and like that was all just kind of all done by feel, right? And experience. And so of course we've made mistakes along the way. We've learned along the way. But I, I just think that there's, a, to a certain extent, it becomes almost in a certain way, it becomes like you have to approach your own career as your own business, so, so to speak, right? So you need to take responsibility for what you're doing. You know, because sitting, you know, Having joined another international organization, I know my time frame. I know my period. I have defined things I want to do. I have a timeline. I know when I should leave. I know all these things. But that's like, in, that's hindsight. That's 2020. You know, now I know very clearly about what can happen in the future. But when I started, man, I had no idea of like about yeah. any of that stuff. And it was just like, well, as long as I can keep this job, I'll be great. You know, uh, and and that was about it. But I, I think to a certain extent, we need to to take this on as kind of our own personal responsibility as career management, almost as if we have our own business, our own type of consultancy or something like that, because of the fact that it's, you have to own it to a certain extent. And, and I, I think, you know, I mean, I was really happy when you asked me to do this because I, I have actually spent a lot of time talking to students, you know, often from, you know, the university I went to, the law school I went to, um, because I, I also feel like, you know, look, I, I went to, I did my undergrad in, I finished in 1995. So I'm kind of telling you all how old I am. Um, but, you know, there was no, there was no one in the career center that could tell you anything at all about careers in the international market, like other than MBA, you know, having gone to Purdue, Cranert School of Business is one of the top 25 business schools in America. And of course, if I was doing an MBA, they immediately could tell you, you know, the job situation working internationally with an MBA. There wasn't a single other, maybe maybe a school of engineering, but other than those two, they couldn't have told you anything. Um, and I get to law school and, you know, I remember the career, um, the head of the career center there. And the dean sort of looked at me like I had three heads when I said I wanted to work internationally. You know, the first response is, well, you're going to Buffalo Law School. You know, you should stay in Rochester, Syracuse, or Buffalo. If you're lucky enough, maybe you'll get hired by one of the white shoe firms in New York. You know, what What do you mean? Why, what are you talking about? So there was just no recognition that, you know, people might want to do something new. So I completely agree with you. And I, I think, especially for Americans, we recognize that sort of uphill struggle that we had of getting out into the international market. And I think most, if not all of us, are happy to talk to students nowadays because we recognize that even still 22 years later, career centers are not geared towards a global market. I mean, we can talk all we want in the U.S. about, you know, capitalism and, you know, free trade and these sorts of things. But the reality of the situation is it's still very much done staying in the United States. What is your career in the U.S.? And they're not are not so educated about how to work abroad. And so, you know, I think also students shouldn't feel too bad um, about reaching out to, you know, other Americans uh, who have uh, done careers abroad. And I, I do know, I will give them this, that I know, you know, like Buffalo, for example, where I went to law school, they had an undergraduate student who wanted to do something internationally. And they actually put her, one of the deans somehow saw me on LinkedIn. I mean, this is also the crazy part. 
know, they have a database of all the alumni and it's a dean in, you know, one of the other schools, not the law school, who reached out to me who said, I have this undergrad, do you mind, you know, having a chat with her? And, you know, that led to me looking over her CV and giving her some ideas on a CV and things like this, because, I mean, we haven't even talked about that, but of course, you know, American Americans, what they're taught about CVs is, okay, you must have a two-page resume. Do not go over two pages. And, you know, if you're working internationally, those rules don't apply. Your cover letter must be one page. You exceed the one page that's going in the bin. It doesn't work that way overseas, you know? And, and you know, it's just been drummed into, you know, American students' heads that this is what you have to do, and it's just not the case. Unless you talk to someone, you're never going to know these things. And your career center is not going to know these things either. Yeah, that, that's really the crazy thing is because it's there's so many different degree programs that focus on international relations, international security, and all these things mm-hmm. like that. But that doesn't mean, like, what is the target audience for those people? They Or the you know, what, do they all want to go work in D.C.? Do they all want to go work for RAND at a think mm-hmm. tank? Or, like, what is where are they going with that? Mm-hmm. And if it's not international, then what is it? Um, but and that could be a whole nother kind of philosophical discussion on education, but we, we, we should, but let's talk a bit about the boards. And so you, you mentioned you sit on boards. I actually have another board next week. And so let's kind of chat a bit, um, kind of to round out the discussion on some tips and some ideas for people about what it's like for us when we sit on a board. <laughs> and we do the interviews and we review the resumes and we review the test results and all these things like that. What are some you know, simple ideas that people can, can do to kind of make themselves stand out a bit more? I mean, in the UN system now, they've moved to trying to give a written test um, to try to make the process less subjective. And so um, in the written test, follow the directions. <laughs> I know that sounds so, so basic you will be surprised how many people do not follow the directions. And, and the thing is, every hiring manager um, will, will sort of write a test in a different way. So I, I can't give you like a lot of, um, you know, tips in that sense. I mean, I personally, I like, I like to test not a knowledge, but I like to test someone's logical reasoning. You know, what I like to do is I, I, you have your own opinion about things. And, and it's unfair for me to ask you a question and say, so, you know, tell me about the, you know, um, judicial authority law in Palestine and how that relates to international human rights. That's an unfair question for anyone, you know, like you're not going to know enough about it. But if I say to you, you know, knowing the general situation in Palestine, please uh, tell me what you think are the most key rights uh, that you know, a project like mine should be working on and how would you use the project to uh, accomplish, you know, that goal? And then you're basically getting someone to put their thoughts on paper and to organize it, yeah? And, and that's really all sometimes I'm, I'm sort of testing. Can people string a sentence together? And, you know, is it written well? Um, and I'm not even so concerned about typos because goodness knows I'm the worst speller in the world. So I'm really not, you know, I, I don't throw stones at class houses, but, um, you know, I think just the logical reasoning, you know, if you say, you know, for me, the three most important rights issues in Palestine are X, Y, and Z. Uh, and if my question is identify the three rights, pick one and explain how you will do whatever, then please just pick one, you know? I don't know how many times, you know, I get written tests and someone, you know, A, I've asked for only three reasons and they give you seven and number six and number seven are actually the same, but just, you know, phrased differently. And then they try to explain all seven of them. And so they don't explain any of the seven sufficiently in any detail. So that's sort of key number one, I would say, please just follow the directions. And that will probably already put you in the top half of candidates if you just follow the directions. Um, The second one that I would say is, if you're being asked to give a written test, unless it says, you know, use bullet points or make a list, write out a paragraph, right? Because 
one of the things we're trying to do, if we're giving you a written test, it's probably because you're going to have to write something in the job. And, you know, if you have to file a report to a donor, if we're getting $7 million from a donor, you can't just write 10 bullet points as to how we use their money. You know, you've got to put this in a, you know, well-structured, thought-out paragraph. So write something, you know, because that's how we're, we're kind of judging. In the interview, um, I'll say this, that the UN uh, has moved to something, I say has moved, but it's been going on for probably a good seven years now, something called competency-based interviewing, which means that, um, and again, maybe some of your students are too young to ever had an interview like this. You know, in the old days, we used to get asked a question like, oh, I see you worked for the OSC. Tell me about that. What was that job like? You know, and you just have to answer something. You know, you'd have, ah, oh, well, that job was really challenging to me because I had to do this, this. Nowadays, you know, you're not going to get asked questions like that. The type of question you're going to get asked is, Tell me a time when you had an interpersonal conflict with someone on your team. What was the conflict about? Um, what steps did you take to resolve it? And what was the outcome? And I don't know who came up with this idea, and I'm not saying it's it's right or wrong, but it's just it's a completely different way of interviewing. And one of the biggest mistakes in that is that the panel wants to hear about you. You know, they want to learn about what did you do, what was your role. And I know, especially I think for Americans, we keep being told, you know, in a job interview, you know, be humble, be humble. Um, and this is not the place to be humble. You know, I wouldn't lie. <laughs> I would, you know, make huge chunks up. But you have to keep answering, I did this, I did this. And it's fine to say, you know, we as a team came together and we decided one, two, and three, and then my role was to implement two, and this is how I went about implementing number two. So you, you can put a we in there, but the whole point of the question is to focus, what did you do? What did you do? What was your role? How did you do that? The biggest mistake in those is people keep saying we, 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 and so we never fully understand what did you do, you know? Were you just hanging on someone's coattails and being, you know, dragged along in the process? Or, you know, did you take the bull by the horns and you were authoritative and you got stuff done? And that's what we're trying to judge. So you really, you need to focus on your role uh, in that. The other key is that under the, the sort of um, job description, you'll see the competency areas. And from the competency areas, those are the questions you're going to be asked. I mean, yes, you'll get asked the typical, why, do you, why are you interested in this job? Why do you want to work in when? Why do you want to work in Palestine? Well, you know, you'll get asked that sort of opening icebreaker question, but you are always going to be asked questions based on the competency in the job description. Um, so, you know, if one of the competencies is management or leadership, you're going to get asked questions on management or leadership. If one is on social media communications, you're gonna be asked questions on social media. Um, so, you know, those are, those are quite key. And then the last thing I would say is, you know, when you prepare for the interview, you know, already imagine how you would answer some of these questions. And I'm certainly not saying to write it all down on your computer. And in this day and age, you know, in Zoom, you know, you can sort of read it off the computer screen as you're on the camera. Don't do that either, you know, engage. But, um, you know, keep your answers to about five minutes. Because if, if you just ramble on and on and on, you lose the panel. So it's much better to be very sort of succinct. And if you have to ask them, you know, either at the beginning, uh, you know, because the UN were quite bad, we will ask like a three-part question. So it's fine if you want to write down the three-part question, take a moment as you're writing that down. If you have to say, sorry, I only got the first two. Can you tell me what the third one was again? No problem. You know, there's no problem with that. Don't worry. That's not showing any weakness at all. That's showing that you're concentrating, that you're listening, that you're comprehending. Don't worry about it. But just make sure you answer the question and you answer it succinctly without rambling for 10 minutes. Um, that's really the key. Yeah, that's, that's great. That's really helpful. I, I would add to that also to a certain extent that 
you know, really preparation as you're talking about is key. Um, because I've sat on boards and it, it's just really obvious um, when people are not prepared to answer the questions, when they don't have examples for these competency-based interviews. Um, because they're, I think they're used writ large now across all the organizations, all the international organizations use them. So if the UN uses them, I know for a fact OSCE uses them, and I know that also NATO uses them, and I'm pretty sure I think also EU uses them as well. Um, so that that's really, it's like you can't escape that. So part of this whole thing that, you know, we've kind of a theme in this course is to say, okay, prepare yourself as you're going through your university studies, or maybe you just graduate and you have a job and you, but you really want to work internationally, prepare your, yourself, document the projects you're working on, def define these examples now, because when you get to a board and, and you're sitting on it or I'm sitting on it, we're, we're looking for exactly what you said, a logical thought process. You know, can you tell us this situation and how you resolve these issues? What would you say to somebody that is just starting at the university. So 18 to 19 years old, wants to, to work internationally, what should they do when they first start out? Well, one thing I would really recommend is trying to learn a language. That will make you, you know, very marketable um, if you are able to try and learn French, Spanish, you know, Russian. One of the five UN languages would be, you know, quite key. Um, you know, it is something that I feel has handicapped me. I love language, but I'm, I'm maybe a typical American and that I'm quite poor at languages. Um, I took German for many, many, many years. It's not a UN language, so it's not all that helpful. It's been great, you know, when I need to get a taxi in some cities where, you know, two people are going to speak German as the second language because, you know, we can't speak each other's first language, but not so helpful job-wise. Um, so that, that would certainly be number one. Number two, generally just being aware of sort of world affairs at some of the, like the bigger topics. Um, and when I say the bigger topics, you know, let's be brutally honest. I think terrorism, those sorts of issues are big topics. Even if you don't intend to work on terrorism, you have to understand how that impacts other things that you may be working on. So, you know, that will mean, you know, you need to kind of understand, you know, the Gulf countries, um, you know, you will need to understand Asia, you will need to understand certain hotspots in these places, you'll need to understand the difference between, um, you know, the Sunni world, the Shiite world, you will need to understand the, these kinds of things. And I know it's a very sort of small example, but it's, it's applicable to a lot of larger things. You know, when I, I was going to add this to the last point too. I mean, when you're when you're doing an interview, you're never going to be asked a very specific question generally about the politics or the history of the country you're interviewing or working. But you have to be able to sort of demonstrate a general understanding or a general knowledge, you know, of, of the area. And as you're talking about preparation, that that should be part of your preparation. But honestly, I don't think you can do that in just you know three days before an interview. I mean, this is something you need to be doing sort of constantly reading up and understanding these things um, and how they, how they sort of relate. I'm torn because I am a big believer in the fact that having a legal background helps significantly in these kinds of careers, but it's also hugely expensive. So I, I completely understand people saying there's absolutely no way I'm going to go drop $100,000 on going to law school for, for three years. I, I get that. But there may be other ways to do it. And how I went and did a master's degree in Europe in international human rights law, in Europe, um, you can often get a master's degree in law even if you don't have an under, undergraduate degree in law. So you don't necessarily have to have a law degree from the US to go do a master's degree. So you might want to consider something that like that. So you get sort of a more uh, basic, you know, kind of degree, whether that's in history, politics, and you already begin sort of thinking about, you know, potential graduate programs, that you have a bit more of a specialization. Um, and, and probably something, you know, a lot of students aren't going to like to hear is that, um, you know, in this day and age, you know, master's degrees are becoming the norm, frankly. So a bachelor is no longer really cuts it in most of the sort of posts you're looking at. And even, even if you 
can get by with a, with a bachelor's degree, or say a P2 or a P3 post. If it comes time for that P3, P4, you're almost certainly going to need a master's degree. So then it's kind of, you know, your option, do you want to try to do that all in one stretch, you know, and just do your BA and your master's and then go out in the job field? Or do you want to try to break that up? I mean, different schools of thought on that, really. Um, and I'm not sure I'm, I'm in a position to kind of give a real advice. I, I happen to go all the way through. Uh, because again, in the American system, I couldn't have afforded to work for one year between my bachelor's and law degree because of the loans. You know, I would have had to start paying loans back. So the only way I could afford to do the education was to go all the way through so I could get my deferments from my loans. Um, so obviously, you know, student by student, you have to decide what, what's the best option from that. But uh, yeah, I think those would be sort of the the recommendations I would make someone who's sort of like a senior or you know in their first year of university, let's say. Yeah, no, that's that's super helpful. I mean, and, and I didn't actually go through. I actually did my master's when I was in. Well, finished my master's when I was in Afghanistan. So, which is also not really recommended, <laughs> but, you know, um, but it, I think it's a testament to the fact that, you know, the, to, if you're just starting out to, you don't necessarily have to have an in-depth and deep understanding of regional conflict and state on state conflict, but maybe, I mean, at the same time, you have to understand the international organizations. So what are the international organizations doing? You know, and that that is something to have that kind of basic understanding is is really important so that you can speak smartly about, you know, these, you know, what is the role of the UN in a conflict, for example. And then as you prepare for the interview, be able to understand what the role of the UN is in the certain mission area that you're applying for, for example. It just it's much easier. And whether that's the UN or the OSCE or others. But you know, understanding the international organizations and what they do and how they function is is uh, going to really help people. As and you have time if you're just starting out, you have time to do this. And I'm glad you said languages because that's also something that we we kind of preach. And I'm in the same boat as you. I, I did learn German to a certain extent, but you know now it's like Russian. And I actually found somebody who will teach me Russian via German. So <laughs> that is it, and which is kind of a I hope doesn't just make me crazy but yeah. somehow compounds my learning. Uh, but we'll, we'll see. I'll get back to you on that. But anyway, yeah. so Chris, yeah, thanks a lot. This was a, a really super helpful. And because you really validated a lot of things that we have already kind of put into the course and the content and material. And so uh, as, as just kind of an unscripted, you know, conversation between us and, and without any kind of prior coordination, I mean, you have actually really validated everything that we have, we've put mm -hmm. into the course. And so that just really means a lot to me from the fact that, you know, this isn't just a personal opinion from my side. This is really something that is occurring largely throughout the international organizations, and we all share a common view about how these things kind of function and operate. Uh, so really just to greatly appreciate it. Thanks for your time today. And uh, best of luck. Same to you. Take care.